is that uh, I'm losing some of my social skills. And I didn't have many to, to begin with, but the more that I'm apart from human beings, the more I discover that I'm losing what little I did have. So if my microphone was off, again, I, I greet those who are out and about and listening to this, whether it's local, our state, our nation, or around the world. We're thankful that you have tuned in. It is the first weekend in May. There are many things that are going on in our country. There are many things that are not going to be going on, not the least of which are the graduation from schools, whether they be high schools or colleges. Uh, but one nice thing that I have seen in our area is that Kingsley is honoring their graduation, graduating students by putting their pictures up along Main Street. And I say that because one of our young ladies who is graduating this year is actually on that picture. So if you were out and about and traveling, keeping safe distances and uh, all that the governor has told us to do, drive by and see Cassie's picture. We're so grateful that uh, the town has done that. We certainly want to give honor to whom honor is due. And being it is the first part of April, it is not going to be too long until the morales are out. And I did want to mention that. If you are not in a part of the country that has morales, I'm sorry about that, but uh, we'll be going out into the woods traipsing and looking for those. Our passage today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. Our classes, our sermons, our daily devotionals are designed this year to bring us from January 1st in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, through December 31st into the book of Revelation. So in the course of the year, we are going to cover the entire New Testament in one way or another, so that at the end of the year, we'll have said we have covered the New Testament. And our reading this past week was in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. And some may wonder if this was a, a design just based upon things that are going on in our nation when I chose this passage from the Gospel of Luke, and it was not. I chose this passage uh, several months ago. I choose my sermons weeks in advance. But how timely it is when we consider the message that's going to be talked about today. And I'd like to read the passage. It is found in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, chapter 20. And we're going to begin in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And we may think in our present crisis that, that this is a very timely uh, passage to study, that along with uh, 
the Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 13. But it is no more applicable today or pertinent today than it was 2,000 years ago. It is just as pertinent today as it was 2,000 years ago. However, there are some things that we're going to look at today that will answer this in the way that Jesus intended it for. Many times as we, as we try to express a lesson to people, we do it in a way in which it seems to take a roundabout way to get there, but eventually ends up and they may at the end wonder, well, now why did that story, why was that story told? But eventually it begins to sink in, sort of like water. It's a, sometimes it may take a little time. But in the case where Jesus teaches this lesson, I'd like us to look at it, and many of you have received the outline. If you'd like to follow along in the outline, I'd like to follow that as well to give us an idea of what Jesus is talking about. And I've divided it up into three parts. And I look at, look at the, and put them in an alliteration, of the first part of this in verses 19 through 23 is really about rousing suspicion and looking at why a question like this was answered or asked to them. And then I'd like to have a look at verse 24 in recognizing allegiance. And the last part I'd like to look at is the rendering of obedience. So in dividing that up into three, Jesus recognized uh, exactly what these group of people, the scribes and the chief priests, as it tells us in verse 19, exactly what they were uh, intending. And it, it tells us that, uh, uh, that he knew exactly why they were. In verse 23 it says, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them. So he understood exactly where it was coming from. So I think that's a good place to start as we look at uh, exactly what it is, what is the motivation of why someone would ask this question then and now. And as we look at uh, the motivation, we see that it begins by telling us, uh, for they perceived he had told this parable against them and they feared the people. So they watched and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something they said. So the whole idea was they didn't care as much about rendering to Caesar and wanting to know that as they did about catching Jesus in his own words that they might have something to accuse him and have a way of removing them for their own power. So, and this is not unusual. If we were to go back to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16, uh, we find that uh, uh, in verse 14, and verse 14 of Luke chapter 16 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So Jesus told certain parables and certain lessons because of the audience that was around him. In this case, in Luke chapter 16, he told it because they were lovers of money. We back up even further into the Gospel of Luke in chapter 14 and verse 7. It tells us, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So he chose these, these situations uh, based on people that surrounded him so that the lesson might be pertinent to them, but also even 2,000 years later nearly, that we could look at it and understand the lessons that Jesus was teaching based on what he told. But there's also a part of this to where we look at, there were people who were actually sincere in what they wanted to learn from Jesus. We could go to the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John in chapter 3. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, Jesus is very early in his ministry. 
In verse 1 it tells us, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And notice how very similar this sounds to Luke chapter 20. Uh, when he says, uh, when they say, they ask him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Uh, coming from two very different angles. And the context of what is uh, what we find these tells us that Nicodemus was sincere because he was searching for truth. In our modern term, we might use this as those are people who are searchers. And those are the people that we really want to address, those that are searching, not those who are necessarily skeptics. We find that Nicodemus was a man who was actually searching for the truth. He wants to know. Uh, we find that uh, there are also people that, uh, the methodology that sometimes they will use, they'll use flattery. In the Luke chapter 18, and verses 18 through 19, I know I'm going to give you a lot of verses, but this is going to answer a lot of questions as to the beginning as we lay a, a broad foundation in which we can build on. In Luke chapter 18, we find a rich young ruler. And he's described in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it gives us a little bit different. It tells us he was young, that he was rich, and that he was a ruler. And in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, it says, The ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it sounds innocent enough, and it sounds sincere when he says, Good teacher. But notice what Jesus says in verse 19. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that may be very confusing to some people who say, You see, Jesus did not actually believe that he was God. But in reality, what he's looking at is the young man is using a form of flattery. Good teacher. And he wasn't sincere, and Jesus knew this. Why do you call me good? It was just another way of addressing people, a salutation that was just form and function, but the sincerity was not there. Why do you call me good? It was just a way that he had. In Luke chapter 10, we find another interesting situation. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Very much the same question that was asked by the rich young ruler. But notice, we're going to notice a couple of things about this lawyer. He, put, he stood up to put him to the test. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So we find the underlying idea and thoughts behind this man was he wanted to put Jesus to the test and he wanted to justify himself. So the intent of his heart was such that he was not what we might call a true seeker down to his very soul. Uh, in, verse, in Luke chapter 20, verses, beginning in verse 27, we find that the Sadducees are coming to Jesus, and the Sadducees had their own mindset. Uh, the Sadducees the, did not believe that there were spirits like angels. They did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, so they, come, they came to him, the Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And the, the, uh, the situation that they posed to him is about the woman who has a husband, he dies, and then subsequently all six of his brothers uh, 
as according to the law of Moses, were there to propagate the family. So they were not necessarily interested in truth, but they gave him uh, what sometimes I call the stump the chump. And pardon me for this uh, <laughs> modern way of saying it, but, but you know we find people that have that stump the chump attitude when they ask questions. They're not necessarily looking for truth as much as they are to build themselves up because they know that the answer that they're looking for really can't be found and they only believe what they want to believe. Verse uh, John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8, we find a similar situation beginning in verse 3. The Gospel of John chapter 8 beginning in verse 3. A very familiar, if you have read the Gospel of John, very familiar passage. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So once again they, they weren't really interested First and foremost, they should have been interested in the very soul of this woman and the, the one whom she was caught with. But they're not concerned about her life, her soul, and even the law that was broken, but to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So we have seen in these examples that there are ulterior motives that people can use for searching for truth that really have, in reality, they're not searching for truth because they already believe what they believe and they're looking to trap someone or to further uh, build up what they already believe in. But I think there's an example in, in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 and verse 10. We find that Paul and Silas are on a missionary journey, and they come across some brethren. Beginning in verse 10 of Acts chapter 17, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. And I think that's a very good thing to keep in mind, that as we have looked at these examples of people that had their ulterior motives, but we find that there are people like Nicodemus, and there are people like those of Berea, who are interested in searching for the truth, searching for truth for truth's sake not to line what they already believe, or to catch someone in their, uh, in their own words. So we have found this, that there is a, uh, a sense of which the, Jesus was looking for seekers, and he was able to recognize when people were not really interested in finding the truth. And so it is, as we come back to Luke chapter 20, that the scribes and the chief priests were not interested. And, and it's a very good question. It's a valid question. It is a timely question down throughout the ages, not just in the Roman-occupied uh, Jerusalem or the United States of America in the 21st century, but all places throughout the world. This is a valid question to want to know. And Jesus answers their question without answering their question. Uh, and, and I'm sure that they may have walked away uh, scratching their head because in verse 26 it says, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And you wonder what that actually means, that they marveled at his answer. Did they marvel the fact that they couldn't figure it out? They marveled the fact that he didn't necessarily answer our question? But we'll see that he really did answer their question. 
So as we look at, uh, we've looked at the rousing of suspicions and, and how people search. The next thing we want to look at is recognizing our allegiance. I'd like us to turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. And Galatia is, a, uh, is an area that is part of what we would recognize today as modern-day Turkey. It was uh, located in the central and northern part of modern-day Turkey. So he writes to those churches, a group of churches called the Galatians in Galatia. And in chapter 6, Paul tells them, beginning in verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something, he is nothing. He deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So Paul tells them in Galatians chapter 6 that they need to test our own work. That's a way of, it, within the context of what Paul is talking about, uh, it, it answers to a broader uh, question that we have about how do we know? How did Jesus know that these people were searching? And one of the things that he, Jesus uses is, is, in our modern times, we may look back and call it, that's a Socratic method. But it was actually a, a method that was very common, uh, not only with the Greek and Roman philosophers, but within the Jewish heritage as well. For Jesus begins with a question. And, uh, and the, the Jews ask him a question in verse 22 of Luke chapter 20. He says, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? There's really two questions in there for them. Give tribute or not to tribute. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? So really couched in there, there are two more questions. Whose likeness and inscription? I actually have a replica of a Roman coin that would have been somewhat like they had. It was a denarius, which was a denarius was a, a day's wage uh, that was paid for those who were workers. And he said, whose likeness and inscription is on it? And they said Caesar's. And so based on that, the question that he asked them, he asked them for themselves to, to use their own ability to reason and reconcile this. Whose image and inscription? So they come up with the answer for themselves. I would become so discouraged when I was a child in school at many levels because when I would come to th something like math class, the teacher would give the, she would give us the problem. We would work through it, and, and really all I wanted was the answer. And it's true of a lot of us. All we want is just the answer. But the ability to work through it and show our work of how we came to that was the most important part of what our teachers were trying to tell us. And I'm still working and trying to, uh, to acclimate that to my life today, is show us your work. How did you come to this? He asked them so that they may come to this conclusion on their own. The same way that Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3 and 5. It's not enough for me to look at someone's life and say, well, I think that I have tested you and found you out that, that you're doing well or not doing well. That's not up to me. It's up for each individual, Paul says, to test themselves. Just a few minutes ago when Jack was uh, leading us at the, the Lord's Supper, part of that, uh, one of the passages that we often read from is from the, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, the circumstances surrounding the Lord's Supper in Corinth were, was the fact that they were not doing it for the right reasons or with the right heart. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore 
eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he will, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now listen to what Paul says in verse 28, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And sometimes we're confused in saying when a person has to examine themselves, they get the idea that, oh, I need to examine myself, see whether I'm worthy, uh, I, I've lived a life that is worthy of this. That's not what Paul's talking about. He says the reason that you're taking of the Lord's Supper is for a specific reason. And obviously that reason was missing with many of those in Corinth because they were eating and drinking to themselves, they were becoming drunk, they weren't caring about others. So they had, they had lost the idea of what the Lord's Supper. They were not discerning the body. When they talk about the body, not discerning not only the body of Christ, but the body, his physical body, but also the body, the church. So he says, examine yourself. Think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. This isn't something that's done in a frivolous manner. We examine ourselves. Coming down to Paul's, what we know of as Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul uses this idea of examining ourselves in a different aspect here. In verse 5 he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So there's an, an, an idea of being able to examine ourselves. And this, I would suggest to do this on a regular basis. Examine what you do and why you do it. You don't have to question everything you do. Well, is this, am I doing the right thing every single step that I take? But it is a good idea from time to time to know why you're doing something so it simply does not become a tradition, but it is based, in fact, on the scriptures that we have. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Listen to what Peter tells us. In Peter's second letter, chapter 1 and verse 10. Therefore, brothers, therefore, because he's the things that he has just listed before there. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So he says, be diligent. And in order to be diligent, one must know why they're doing it, and one must have a purpose in all of this. In a sense, he's, he's reiterating what Paul has said to the Galatians, what he said to the Corinthians. He says in his letter, and this is much later in the first century, after Paul would have written these things to the Galatians and Corinthians, says the same thing. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Examine these things. So as we uh, ha have looked at this and, uh, and considering in uh, rendering our obedience, Jesus asked the question, whose likeness and inscription does it have? Render to Caesar the things of Caesar's and to God things that are God's. And as we examine the two, the two options, and there's only two here, and you cannot have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too, as they say. You must choose one. Are you going to render obedience to Caesar or to God? You cannot do both. Listen to how Jesus states this in what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for he either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and 
money. So in giving this, this choice, he says, you must render the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Elijah said in 1 Kings chapter 18, as uh, he is uh, up on that mountain and uh, we begin in verse 21, it says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah tells them, you're limping between two. You're trying to serve God, and you're trying to serve the idols of Baal. You can't do both. You can't limp between them. You can't, in our modern term, we might use a term, that, uh, a phrase that says, you can't ride the fence on this. You've got to be on one side or the other. You can't limp between the two. Same thing that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve two masters. The same thing that he says in reality here in Luke chapter 20. You have one or the other. So we begin to ask the question of how does one render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and how does one render to God the things that are God's? Well, this question, fortunately, was answered nearly a thousand years before. The psalmist, and we don't know who wrote Psalm 116. If you'd like to turn to Psalm 116, you open it relatively to the middle of the Bible, then you can go from one way or the other depending on where it falls, either forward to 116 or backward to 116. But the psalmist who wrote Psalm 116, beginning in verse 12, says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And as you continue on from verse 13 down through 19, he says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all the people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all the people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Wind that all up into one little saying is, I will render to the Lord everything that he is due. So you don't need to answer in Luke chapter 20 about the things that are, should be rendered to Caesar. If you answer the question of what should I render to the Lord, that will answer for itself what we need to render to God. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, going to begin in verse 28. We find in verse 28 one of the scribes, and this scribe is apparently one who is searching for truth. He is a searcher. It says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that they answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, and now when Jesus answered what is most important, you can rest assured that it is the most important. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, 
and to love one's neighbors oneself as much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So I would submit to you that when Jesus says to render to God the things that are God's, I believe that it is answered in the context of this passage from Mark chapter 12. That in the eyes of the scribes and chief priests, they may not have known what the answer that Jesus truly said, but he answers it here in Mark chapter 12. So we'll look at the four things that within ourselves that we ought to render to God. And the first one is that we need to render our heart. And if we backed up just a little bit to what we had read about, you cannot serve two masters. Your heart cannot be divided. Your heart must be one. Uh, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So our heart must be undivided, but it also must have God as preeminent in all things. And when it says, does not hate his own father, doesn't mean that we have to physically hate them, but our love to them needs to be less than what our love for God is, and that is a heart that is wholly divided to, or pardon me, wholly devoted to God. In Proverbs chapter 4, Solomon giving wise and sage advice in the first nine chapters uh, to, uh, as he addresses that as his son, as a father would address his son. But in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Solomon says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So we need to have a heart that is undivided, but one that is with all vigilance is watched after, because from the heart. And it is difficult as we look at these that talks about our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength, because many times they overlap. And they may become confusing to us, but as we look at the, the four segments that are being talked about, it will become clear that what is being talked about is our entire body. Our entire being that we are needs to be devoted to God. In our heart, that which is uh, in, the, in the ancient, and even in today, we talk about the, the heart as the center uh, of love. We're devoted in our heart. Many times our language gives it away that it's not really talking about that prefrontal cortex where all of our thinking Rational thinking goes on, but it's our heart. We understand that. Not only the heart, but the soul. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26, Jesus puts it into context of the value of the soul. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So we see the value of it. And we see that the soul is eternal. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 20, God said to him, you fool. He's talking to the, uh, to the farmer who's going to tear down barns and, and build new ones. He says, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, listen to how Paul divides up, uh, talks about the soul here in the one of the first letters that Paul had written, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see there that Paul makes a division here. Not always easy to see what they are, but they are certain segments of it that represent uh, parts of us. 
Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, we see the eternality of it when Jesus says, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And this hell is the Greek for Gehenna, that place of eternal punishment. So Jesus divides it up and makes a difference between the body and soul. But that soul is the part of us that separates us really from the, from the animal world. So the heart, our soul, we come down to the mind, that which is the intellectual thinking part of us. I constantly come back to Ezra chapter 7 in the Old Testament. For Ezra 7.10, Ezra 1 that I greatly admire says, For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He said he set his heart to study, his heart, his desire, but also his mind to study. Paul tells Timothy in one of the last letters that Paul wrote, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. He says, be diligent. Some of your versions may say study. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling or rightly handling the word of truth. So there's an intellectual part of the word of God that involves study of it. Heart, soul, mind, and our strength. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't think that Paul is talking about a physical strength of, of being a bodybuilder uh, as much as he is talking about the strength, that inner strength, that virtue that comes from God. He writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That which is a part of us, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, as Jesus told in Mark chapter 12. The last part of this is to love your neighbor as yourself. Or as we talk about ourselves and, and our attitude towards God, but now we, he talks in Mark chapter 12, he says, the second is this in verse 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, to love God with our heart, mind, soul and strength, but to love our neighbor as ourselves. James, who is the brother of Jesus, says in James chapter 2 and verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. James recognizes this. The apostle John, one of the last letters that was written, says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his neighbor. So we have seen that Jesus answers the question here to render to God the things which are God. And the reality of it is that everything about us must be rendered or given over to God. We cannot love God and love money. We cannot love God and be wholly given to something else or partially given. It must be all. So as Jesus gives them the answer that is true about rendering to God the things that are God, when we examine, we look at ourselves and say, what have I rendered to God? And if we truly can answer this as Paul told the church at Galatia, as he told to the church at Corinth, when we test ourselves and ask the question, have I rendered everything to God? The answer of rendering to Caesar 
takes care of itself because we realize that everything that I am about cannot be divided. I cannot give over to Caesar. Because as they looked at the likeness and inscription of Caesar on the coin, they realized that that picture and the Caesars considered themselves to be deity. That likeness and inscription, you shall have no other likeness but me. And realizing that to give ourselves over to Caesar means that we are showing partiality to Caesar and worshiping as the coin says in the context of what is being talked about here. So the question we ask as we finish our lesson today, have you rendered to God everything that belongs to God? As the psalmist says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And as we truly think about the things that God has given us or the benefits that he has given us, he has given us everything. And in return, have we given God everything about ourselves? Have we rendered everything about our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength? And have we loved our neighbor as ourselves? If we are doing these, then we have rendered to God. But if we have not, it is a time that we test ourselves, that we examine ourselves and say, what do I need to do in order to take care of those things? need to be remedied. As we look at the first and most important thing for all the things and the benefits that God has given us, not the least of which is, the most important, is salvation for us. And as we consider, have I set those things right in my life? For God has given us those directives, if you will, for us to be in obedience with him. For even the demons believe that there is a God. So it takes more than just the assent of the mind to say, well, there must be a God. It must be in obedience to that. In believing that, there are certain things that God has told us. He's told us that we must repent or turn from our old life and turn towards him. And to confess him that Jesus is Lord of our lives. That Jesus is the Christ. That he died for us. And to be baptized into Christ. To wash away our sins. To reenact that death burial, and resurrection in Christ, setting those things forth, then devoting our lives completely and wholly, rendering to God the things that are God. I hope that you will consider these, uh, these issues in your life, to examine yourself and test yourself and ask yourself without preconceived ideas, without already having the answer, and not because I said it, but because you can read it in the scriptures and find the answers for yourself and answer that deepest parts of your heart and say, have I rendered everything to God that belongs to God? And in fact, everything we have belongs to God. I hope that you'll think about this uh, today. I hope you will not delay another day until you are able to answer that correctly in every detail. Thank you for your time and thank you for joining us today for our worship. I'll turn it over to Tim who will have our final song today. It only seemed proper that we could